0: If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let's open up to the book of Exodus. Today, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 8, moving along uh, down the story and the narrative of where the plagues began to be implemented. Uh, this uh, past Monday or Tuesday, I was uh, had ordered lunch, was waiting in line, and uh, struck up a conversation with the guy that was next to me, and uh, went through all the you know casual conversation points. I ended up asking him if he knew the Lord at all. He said he did. Uh, asked him what he did for a living, and so he was telling me that. He said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm actually a pastor. Um, and I'm, I'm one of the elders down at uh, Travis Avenue, just down the road. And he said, oh, well, great. And so we talked about church and invited him uh, to our worship service. And he said, well, by the way, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, well... I just happen to be doing something I've never done before. Uh, I'm preaching an entire sermon on frogs. And uh, he said, interesting, Uh, where are you going with that? And I said, I have no idea at this point. I have a really good idea for a great illustration, if you know where I can find somebody that has a thousand frogs, and I'll borrow those frogs for my sermon, but that's really as far as as I've gotten. Um, As I've sort of wrestled and struggled with uh, this text this week, one of the things that the Lord began to do through the process of like, how how do you divide a passage, and talking about a plague of frogs, and bring application and understanding, and how are we to look at this passage and this story that actually happened, and what lens are we to interpret that through? And then you start watching things that are taking place across the sea, in places like Ukraine. And places surrounding there, and you see the heartache, and you see uh, the toil, you see the people that have been displaced from their homes, and you see the bombings and the shellings, and, and you know these things are, are not going away anytime soon. And so it has you questioning in these kind of moments when you look at this and you say, is God really in control of all this? It's one thing to say that we believe in God's sovereignty, and we understand him to be all powerful, and, and we believe for him to be a good God, but, but if we're truthful, sometimes when we're going through hard times, we may know that he's a good God and that he's sovereign, but we don't feel like it. And so, we go to God with those questions. God, are you in control right now? Are you seeing what is happening to the people of, of Ukraine? Lord, would you make this stop? Would you, would you end it? And so, we have a group of people in Exodus 8. They're not being invaded by a country, but they're living in as, as hostages, as, as slaves in a foreign land, and, and they uh, are, live their lives under the authority of this Pharaoh. And so, God begins to break the chains off of the Hebrew people, and He begins to speak uh, specifically to Pharaoh. But when we think about God's sovereignty, which is how I want to look at Exodus 8 this morning, I want to remind us of a couple of things. When we say that God is sovereign, here's what we mean by this. A.W. Pink provides a great definition of this. He simply says that God's sovereignty is the exercise of his authority. It's the way in which he exercises the authority that he has and the right that he has as God. You see, God being sovereign, we understand that God is subject to no one, that he's not influenced by, by, by anyone. He is absolutely and utterly independent. He does as he pleases, when he pleases, and how he pleases. He's sovereign, and he's in control, and he's good. One of the things that I want us to see in this text as we begin to walk through this, we're gonna see God's sovereignty on display with really just three moves that exist within Exodus 8. And so if you would pick up with me and follow along in verse one, where the scripture says this, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that come up from your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and on your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on out of the land of Egypt. Make them come up. You know, in God's sovereignty, we can't miss the irony here that he, he takes something seemingly small and, and really insignificant in this moment, and, and he creates a pest out of it. In the Hebrew, uh, this word frog that translates out there, it doesn't actually uh, write out as a frog, but most literally, if we were to understand this in the original language, it would translate out not as frog, but it would literally say the croaker. You heard a frog croak. And so the idea was, in this moment, as we as we hear these words in verse two, if you refuse to them, behold, I will plague all of your country with these croakers, and the Nile shall swarm with these croakers, and these croakers shall come up in verse four on your people, and they 're going to affect all of your servants. No one in the city and in the land is going to be left untouched by these Croakers. And I don't know if you've ever been camping or tried to sleep outside next to a pond or a river or a stream where there's lots of frogs that exist, but it is incredibly difficult to fall asleep when the frogs start talking. And they croak and they make noises. And they don't stop oftentimes until uh, they find their girlfriend or their boyfriend or whatever it is that they're croaking for in those moments. But, But here in this moment, these frogs come forth and the question then comes, why would God use something like a frog? To display his sovereignty to the most powerful man in, in known existence at this point, yet there's something that God is doing as he is seeking to utterly dismantle and to ruin the kingdom of Pharaoh. And to take it apart, little by little, with each plague that comes in, what we see is God, God's sovereignty is on display through something small. And the reason why he uses these frogs in this instance, or these croakers, is what he is seeking to do is he is attacking the heart of the idolatry that exists within the Egyptian people. We've talked over the past couple of weeks about all the gods that existed, some 80 of them that the Egyptians would worship, and we talked about the god named Happy, who was the source of life and sustenance. And there's another god that we haven't sort of necessarily nailed in on or sort of focused on, a god by the name of Haket. You would just phonetically write it out, H-E-Q-E-T. And she's often depicted within Egyptian art. She is depicted as a female fertility god who comes in the form, get this, of a frog. And oftentimes when she's displayed in these great works of art, she is displayed as a frog. Now she had a variety of functions and how she served the Hebrew people or or the Egyptian people, excuse me. She was a fertility god. And so what would often happen is these Egyptians, they would pray to her. And they would ask her to to be fertile and to to bear children. Uh, She was the God that the women would cry out to when they began to experience labor pains. They would pray to her and ask her to relieve the pain and the hurt that they were going through and then she would answer, so to speak, in her own way. And so they deified her and they worshiped her and they, they prayed to her. But she also had another function. Though she came in the form of a frog, one of her primary duties within the Egyptian culture is she was there to protect the crocodiles. And the reason why and how she would do that is she would control and make sure that the crocodiles always had food and something to eat, primarily what they would primarily eat would be frogs. And so when God says, I'm going to take these frogs and they're going to come out out of every river, every stream, every lake, every crevice, everywhere we go. What God is doing in that moment is he is speaking directly to the God that the Egyptians worship. And he is saying in that moment. This God that you worship, this God that you pray for utterly will will be responsible at the snap of my finger, at the, the, the moment I speak a word. These frogs, this God that you worship will be under my control. Demonstrating in his moment how powerful he is and how sovereign he is over not just Pharaoh himself, but all of the gods that existed within the land of Egypt, these croakers that would come forth, God challenging the very existence of the gods that they chose to worship. But we also see something remarkable that's on display. If we go back to Exodus 1, we remember the story of Pharaoh asking and telling the Hebrew wives that they are to murder the firstborn son, and they are to put him to death. And yet in this moment, what God is doing by turning these frogs and bringing these frogs forth uh, to sort of speak against this God. What he's doing is, as they would pray to her, as the Egyptian midwife was, what God is doing is he's sort of foreshadowing in this moment. You see, in Exodus 1, those same women that prayed to that God were the ones responsible for putting to death all of those Hebrew babies, and so in this moment, as he brings forth the frogs, what he's doing is he is speaking directly against and and to those Egyptian midwives and those women and those people who helped commit such genocide before. And he's displaying his sovereignty here in this moment and his kindness here in this moment. But but I want you to notice uh, what he does. He, He goes in verse one, I want you to notice the pattern up until this point, because next week when we transition, this pattern goes away. And so what God does first to Pharaoh is he, he warns him. Like in his sovereign judgment, in his mercy, he provides a warning for, for Pharaoh to, to listen and to obey and, and to believe in this moment. When we see this phrase like we do in verse 1 where it says, thus says the Lord. And he's telling Pharaoh, I'm about to do these things if you would just let my people go and and let them worship me in the wilderness as I have asked. And then we pick up in verse 6, and it says, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up, and they covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. We talked about this in previous weeks, but just sort of by way of reminder, these magicians, these priests that served in the court of the Pharaoh, they could only duplicate what it is that they saw. They would replicate, they would imitate, and this tells us something about our own adversary that we wage war against, that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they are the principalities and the things that we cannot see, because what our enemy will do is he likes to just twist and take things that are intended to be something else and and he and he replicates them and he mars them with with mistruth or misinformation or maligns and and that's the way that that he works he is the father and the author of lies and what we see in this moment in verse 7 these magicians they imitate and somehow through their secret arts which was always it is always slaying in the old testament for their demonic worship their their demonic acts that they do they make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. And so they replicate it, and they duplicate it. But I want you to see this shift that takes place after this moment. Because you see, something peculiar begins to take place as we see God's sovereignty in the small things. We see his sovereignty on display in the midst of these frogs. But I then want you to see how we see his sovereignty in this moment on display as Moses begins to pray. Notice what happens in verse 8. It says, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. And he brings them into his court and he says, plead with the Lord. Plead with him. Plead with him to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord like you requested in the beginning. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you. You tell me when to pray and, and what to pray. You tell me how soon you want him to answer this request and he will hear you. I will plead for you and your servants and for your people that these frogs may be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile." And then Pharaoh says something kind of weird and strange in verse 10, and he said, how about tomorrow we start? Like, not now, not, not yesterday, like, how about tomorrow? And so, Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. A couple of things that just happened in this moment that I think are quite remarkable. Number one, when we are first introduced into Pharaoh in the beginning of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was the one that brazenly said, who is this God that you serve? He acts like he doesn't know him, doesn't care about him because in Pharaoh's mind and in the eyes of his people, he was their God. He was the one that they were supposed to worship. And yet now in this moment, finally in chapter 8, because of what the Lord has been doing, notice what he does. He summons Aaron, and he summons Moses, come to the court, and then he says this, would you plead with the Lord to take away these frogs? All of a sudden, he begins to understand that there is a God, but his relationship with that God is not there. And so what Pharaoh teaches us in this moment is that we can know a lot of factually correct things about God, we can know who God is, but yet be devoid of an actual relationship with him. We can have all the theology in the world that is right, knowing that we should go to him and cry out and plead with him. We can understand eschatology and soteriology and all of these big words that we learn along the way. We can understand theologically the doctrine of God, but yet be devoid of any kind of relationship with him. This was true of Pharaoh in this moment. And so he tells Moses and he tells Aaron, would you plead with him? And what's remarkable about this interchange is is Moses' response to Pharaoh, you you tell me when I should say it, what I should say, and how, and I will deliver it so that you will know that the Lord God is who the Lord God says he is. And what Moses was saying to Pharaoh, you're going to see his sovereign display of how powerful he is and how able he is and how capable he is, this God that is telling you to let my people go, we see his sovereignty through Moses' trust and through his confidence and, and his obedience, be it as you say so that you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. I think it's a subtle reminder for us this morning too but you have this poor farmer boy who should have been dead in, in every which way, and he, and he comes there to speak to the most powerful man in, in the known kingdom, and yet it is the prayer of Moses that God hears. I think what that reminds us of in this moment is there is no such thing as, as insignificant and small, little, trite prayers. The idea that, that if a man or a woman has a heart for God and is walking with God, closely with God, in relationship with God, we speak to God and he speaks to us through his word. And things happen when God's people come before him and we pray and we seek his presence and we seek to walk according to his will, according to the scriptures. And so Moses demonstrates that that he knows who God is and Pharaoh even sees it and he knows that, that Moses is walking with God and he says, would you plead with him to make it stop? The challenge there, I think, for many of us today is this recognition. Are we living in such a way that the gospel is seen in our mouths and in our lives and in our homes that people like Pharaoh and lost people would see and know that something is distinct and and different about us as we seek to walk in a rhythm of faithfulness and to obey him? And so God demonstrates this sovereignty as Moses says, you tell me when and and how and, and it'll be so. But then this third movement that we see here in the text is not just this sovereign display through something small or this sovereign display through Moses's prayer. But now we see God's sovereign display when Pharaoh rejects the word of the Lord. When he condemns himself, Verse 12 says this, so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs. As he had agreed with Pharaoh, he honors his word. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields. They also died in the kitchen cabinets and in the living rooms under the chairs. They died every which where place that they existed and were. And it says they gathered them in verse 14 together in heaps and the land stank. You can imagine just for a moment the big snow shovels that are coming out, right? And we're getting the bulldozers out and we're moving thousands upon thousands of dead frogs. And we're Just piling them up. And whatever we're going to do after that, we're going to burn them. We're going to do whatever we can to eliminate the stench that exists within our homes, that exists within our cities, that exists within the kingdom of Pharaoh. Because it stinks. And we can't remove this stench fast enough because these frogs are are so many. These seemingly harmless little animals that exist and, and they gathered them in heaps and the land stank. But notice it says when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, it says then he hardened his heart again. We see this rhythm in the book of Exodus where it says God hardens his heart. And then there are moments in which Pharaoh hardens his heart once he sees that there, there's a break in the frogs, he hardens it again and he doesn't honor the thing that he, that he said he was going to do. He doesn't let the people go and he doesn't let them worship in the wilderness as, as he said that he would, even though God had answered his prayer. God responded so that his glory can be known and so that Pharaoh and the others would know. And and all the while, what we know is coming is the first two plagues in this moment. God warns and he says, listen, I'm about to do these things. But what happens after this is this transition where God quits warning. He stops saying, I'm about to do these things, and he just starts doing them. Because he knows that in each moment that he leads and walks down this path, Pharaoh will continue to harden his heart and he'll continue to resist and he'll continue to neglect and he'll continue not to obey and to walk and to try to be faithful. But they gather these frogs because the land smelled. This past summer, Haley and I went on an anniversary trip and we went to Salt Lake City. Not so much a place where many people go, I wanna go to Salt Lake and we just had never been and we thought we we wanna go and uh, we're gonna hang out with the Mormons a little bit and go see some of their stuff. We wanted to go to the great Salt Lake. And so one night we got in the car and we drove out to the Great Salt Lake, and I grew up looking at National Geographic magazines at at home. My dad was always, uh, would get those, and I remember seeing pictures of the Great Salt Lake and, and talking about the Great Salt Lake. And so finally Haley and I were there, we were going to the Great Salt Lake. And can I just tell you something, it is completely underwhelming. And so we get to where we are going, and we see some people down in the water, and, and you don't go to Salt Lake, and you don't go to the Great Salt Lake. And, and not get in the Great Salt Lake and see if there's enough salt in the, in the water that you'll actually flow. But see, Haley and I, we didn't really come prepared. We had on uh, shorts and, and, and jeans and, and we were sort of dressed because we had just come from the airport. And so we start to walk down and say, well, we're here. Uh, we might as well uh, go ahead and get in. But what they don't tell you that you can't see in the National Geographic magazines is they don't convey the utter stench that exists in the Great Salt Lake. And so when you start to walk up to that water and you get closer to it, it is like a million frogs that have been piled into a heap, and you're there in that water. I grew up in East Texas where we didn't have clear lakes. We grew up swimming in dirty lakes. And let me tell you, I've swam in some stinky lakes, but nothing quite like the Great Salt Lake. And so we got in, did our thing, and had no towels. We drove back 45 minutes to where we were staying, and and I think two or three showers later, the stench finally was removed, and and we had gotten it off. We left our clothes outside uh, on the porch because we couldn't bring them inside the house because they, they smelled so bad it was awful. And no matter what we tried to do, we would try to remove that stench from us. And these people in this moment, all they can do is, is smell this, this aroma that would sort of come in and come out. And they would do everything they could to seek to, to remove the, the smell that, it, that existed there in that moment. I, I think sometimes we are guilty of, of trying to remove the, the stench and the stain of sin that exists within our life, and we don't deal with it in the proper way. You see, there has to be a recognition that we come to as a people at some point that, that we realize that we ourselves are incapable of removing the stain of sin that exists deep within our hearts and that we need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need someone to, to, to deal with that sin and to reconcile us to God and, and God does that through, through putting his son to death so that the stain of our sin, the stench of our sin can be washed away. And the Bible says that anyone who would just call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to to save them, to remove the stain of sin in their life, more importantly, deep in their heart. And the Bible says that anyone who calls upon his name will be saved. And here's what he does when he saves us. He removes the condemnation. He removes the guilt, he removes the weight and he breaks the chains and he, he makes the dead person alive again. He makes us new. I don't know if where you are today in your own walk with the Lord. Maybe you're like Pharaoh in this moment, you know a lot of things about God. You know a lot of factual things, you know a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine, but you're not walking with God and maybe you've drifted slowly off in another direction and and are devoid of that relationship with him today, then can I plead with you to say, come back. Would you come back? Would you let today, this moment, be the day where you reset, you recheck, you reengage with him? Not because he needs you, but because he has chosen before the foundation of the world to bring you into his plan and his purpose and to use you for his kingdom because he is merciful and he is kind. He is sovereign still. And he sovereignly chooses to use you and to give you purpose in your life, wherever you are. So would you come back? If you're here today and you've never trusted him to, and called upon his name to save you, then there's no magic formula to this. It's just simply something like this. And you say it in your own words, Lord, would you, would you save me from my sins? I believe that you are who you say you are. That's it. And then let him do his thing. Pray with me. Father, uh, we ask that in this remainder time as we respond in worship, that you would move here in our church that you would call our people to a place of of repentance. But Lord, as you call us to a place of repentance, Father, I pray that you would call us to move forward in a a posture and walking in a rhythm of faithfulness and and obedience. And So Father, would you help us be faithful? We ask these things in the name of Christ and God's people said.